I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Brian Moore's Full Contact with The Telegraph. It's the last podcast of this season, and we'll be looking back on the events, particularly the finals of both the Pro 14 and the Premiership. Looking forward to the Rugby World Cup in Japan, we've also got with us a regular contributor and co-host to this podcast, former Saracens Leicester and England hooker, George Shooter. Hello, George. Hello, Moron. Anyway, Brown, what's, what's been going on just uh, spending my life on the golf course at the moment. <laughs> hey, what, 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 what's your handicap besides a lack of talent? The, yeah, the game. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, play, I play off anything between about uh, 14 and 24, to be honest. Oh, uh, I bet you're popular in Stapleford, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, fair. Well, it's the only thing I've done uh, for years that I've uh, not got any better at. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with the Premiership final. What a final it was. Started off remarkable. Fastest try in the uh, Premiership final good, history, yeah. 27 seconds. And... Well, this is the way I sum it up. I don't think Exeter could have done much more. They didn't do much wrong. Mm. They yeah. just came up against a side who are just slightly better. Yeah, it actually said it in your column, didn't you? There's some, sometimes you, you get into a game where you, you play against a team and sometimes it's individuals, but sometimes it's a team that they're just better than you, slightly better than you or a lot better than you in some cases. I think Exeter, if there was a game next week and they were getting ready for another game and they were doing a traditional review on a Monday, they'd probably watch that, that game from Saturday and think, we couldn't have done much more. Perhaps a, a, a little bit less kicking maybe. They did kick a bit of the ball away from the box, but they, they just come up against a bit of a juggernaut. And that, that's... The thing is, they were, they, were, they were doing well with the kicking yeah, game. Yeah, admittedly. And if, the, but... if anything possibly tilted it, when the two scrum halves were changed for yeah. both sides, I mean, Wigglesworth, who we know is a class player, and uh, I thought he made an immediate impact, and Maunder came on. Whether it was Maunder, I'm not saying fault, but sim- things just didn't seem to go as well for Exeter yeah, uh, after that. I think Nick White was having a, a very good game, wasn't he? Um, probably more to the point, and that's, I guess that sort of drop-off is, is a bit more noticeable if someone's playing out their skin and someone comes off and, and doesn't play out their skin. I mean, again. Do you reckon it was... Uh, not a pre-planned, because I know they don't say you will be on in X minutes most of the time, but presumably they must have seen something, either in stats or just by looking at it, that they thought, actually, we need to do this. I'm not sure they did. Uh, really. I don't know. I think, well, certainly in both both cases, Ben Spencer looked like he was, was pretty pretty badly injured, in, in, not, 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 yeah. not in terms of severity, but certainly couldn't play the rest of the game. Nick White was struggling with cramp for about 15, 20 minutes. So I guess they were both in force changes. I mean, you, you know, yourself, Twickenham can get very, very hot on a, on a sunny day. It's, yeah. It is a proper sun trap. So Scrum Miles run probably more than anyone else in, in, the, in, the, in the game. So I guess there comes to a point where even the top, the top level Scrum Miles, you've got to say, actually, I can't play 80 minutes at the moment. I've got cramp. I've got a, an injury or whatever. So I think there were more. Wigglesworth would probably have played some game time, but I would have thought... Exeter would have liked to play, well, got 80 minutes out of, uh, of Nick White, I would have thought. Well, 11 points up with 20 minutes to go. No side has ever turned round a bigger points deficit than six. But this Saracens team, as we've seen time and again, have a lot of faith in each other, the systems, what they do. And key players, players like Jamie George, who haven't done that much, you know, relative to what mm. we know he can, made a contribution right at the vital time. That's what they do. Remember George Cruz being interviewed afterwards saying, you know, when we were still under the post, we sort of told each other to stop sulking and get on with it. Yeah. And uh, indeed, they did, and that's what they can do. And I've, I've learned to, over time watching Saracens, you know, normal things like body language doesn't look good, this sort of thing, they look tired, doesn't make any difference because yeah. 
they've got enough players who can just do that thing right. I think it, a lot of that just comes down to confidence and you win a lot of games and you win a lot of big games in particular. And actually, your body language doesn't matter because you're behind the post. You don't have people ranting and screaming because everyone knows what, what should be said at that time and they'll talk about composure and exiting and, and, and completing their sets or whatever they call it these days. And Saracens are just at that level and, and the best teams are. I think if you, if you look back at most of the best teams in the game, they'll go behind and you know they won't win every game, but they certainly won't be flapping and panicking behind the posts and they know how to drag themselves back into a game and I think Saracens have got a, a pretty unique blend at the moment of a real sort of solid team spirit and that sort of cussedness and, and belligerence uh, sprinkled with some outrageously talented individuals who can who can just create something out of nothing and Liam Williams is on that on that page at the moment Farrell has his moments uh, oh, Lazowski I think is turning into a hell of a player at 13 so they've got that really hard-nosed edge sprinkled with a bit of stardust and that, that that's very very difficult to beat I mean, the sides have been built in different ways. Going, going forward to get, and I'm talking about the very top for, for the Chiefs. I think they need to do, well, like Liverpool, they just need a couple of acquisitions. Yeah. Because when Jack Noel had to go off, they lost the player who'd be most creative for them. And whilst, and it, this is a, it's wrong to call them boring. They're, they're very efficient. Nothing wrong with that. You know, they're very patient when they get in the red zone and they make sure they score. But against sides who are as disciplined as Saracens, and there aren't many of them, mm. let's face it, yep. but when you come up against that, that isn't going to be enough, especially if that side that you play against has the ability to score quickly. I just think they need maybe one or two more well, options. It's also notable, noticeable, actually, more that the Chiefs haven't really made a splash in Europe yet. Uh, and they've been in the top competition, what, four or five years or so, maybe maybe more than that. Uh, and I don't think they've got out of the group stage yet. In fact, they've probably lost more games than they won. And that's a, that's a bit of an indicator there because you can't go into France and bully teams. You can't go away to the top French, top 14 teams and just pick and go and hope to win the games. Irish teams as well. Certainly. Yeah, it's exactly the Irish. So it, it, they, they do need to add some more strings to their bow. And um, yes, people call them boring and, and, and all this, but I think they're a team that's still evolving and, you know, Eight, eight, ten years ago, people called Saracens boring because they kicked the ball, chased it and yeah. tackled anything that moved. They've evolved into a team that now plays a, a genuine all-court game. That, that's, the way you, that's the way you build teams. You don't just bring in 30 blokes overnight and, and say, go and, go and play champagne rugby. And I think if you look at Exeter from three or four years ago, they're, they're a team that's evolved from that. They're a bit more creative in midfield. They've got Devoto and Slade seem to have settled into a, a partnership where you've got two ball players, two potential fly halves in, in a way, playing in the midfield. Uh, you've you've uncovered a real gem in, in Simmons at fly half as well. So they've got that creativity, back three, they've got some gas on the wings, they've got Noel, as you said. So I think they're a team that's there there or thereabouts now. A couple of guys, as you say, maybe an out and out flyer or a wily old 10 or 9, someone who can help those young players develop. They, they, that could be a, a massive thing for Exeter going forward, but they're not far off. Well, Rob Baxter was fairly phlegmatic afterwards. I think he recognised, as did a lot of people, that against nearly any other side, that would have been absolutely enough. Just came up against a Saracens team at the moment, which is special. Uh, he thinks they've stepped forward considerably from last year. I think he's right, haven't they? Yeah, well, that's exactly my point there. I think they were probably a bit disappointed with the way they played in the final. Again, probably deserved to lose, but you, you, you want to walk away thinking, I couldn't have given any more. They've, they've lost another final, but there's definite improvement, I think. There's a definite evolution in style of play. Of course, Stuart Hogg is going. Yeah, that's exactly what we're so saying. So that's one creative a, a, Yeah, a, a, little bit of mo- a little bit of stardust, moondust, whatever you want to call it, sprinkled on a, a good sort of foundation. And they're not far away. And, and I think Baxter, I don't know him personally, but he seems to be a, a proper rugby man, a very, very down-to-earth bloke. That's, that's what he'll spend the summer saying. He, he won't be panicking and thinking, oh, how do we beat Saris? It's actually, in our, in our evolution, we're another stage down the road and uh, that's what it's about. I pause this and we'll discuss this later as well. Players like George Itoji, not necessarily Farrell because he's got the England captaincy and things are expected of him. Leadership doesn't, mean you have to be ranting and raving and talking to people. You can lead by what you do on the field, making the right decision, making the right play, the right pass, not making the offload when it's not on, stuff like that. We've seen these players who are England regulars now for Saracens do this time and time again. And yet when it came to the second halves of Wales and Scotland, couldn't do it. Mm. Now, there's got to be a reason for that. You can (laughs) posit all sorts of things, you know, 
I've got my own theories. What, 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 do, you, what do you see? Well, I think an obvious one for me is that these guys are uh, experienced Premiership players, 100 and 150 appearances, but they're not experienced internationals yet. And well, they're starting to get towards 30-odd caps, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, but how many, how many of those are starting? People like Jamie George would, would have been on the bench a lot and got his caps off the bench. He's always been behind the England captain, so you don't have that sort of sense of ownership, of leadership. Cruz running the line out, it's, it's, that's, a bit of a, that's, a, that's a leadership role. Maybe he's evolving into something else around that. But again, it, it, I, think, I think they're still quite young people as well in terms of age. They're still, they're still relatively inexperienced international players. And actually the last two years of adversity in an England shirt, well, I would imagine would be great for them because mm. that's, a, that's a huge learning a learning curve there. But now's the time, isn't it? That, that's, that's, well, now's, this now's is, the time to what they, do, what they did in the final. Yeah is what you need to do. You know, when they, in 2003, when they were struggling, you know, Cat, Ken, yeah. and so on, yeah. that's the difference. You have people who do do that, and they need to find a way to do that. And you can talk about sports psychology, and maybe that would be useful. I think just as useful is for, it would be close session, all the players to sit down and say, look, what is it? What are you feeling? Mm. Are, you, are you genuinely, do you feel a bit inhibited? You know, put your hand up. We, we, you know, we're not going to mark you down. But get it out in the open. Yeah. I, I imagine they had those sessions, to be honest. The, the modern player these days, they're, they're far more open than certainly you and uh, definitely me and me were. We didn't, we didn't sort of uh, Oh, I don't know. Ours were quite brutal when we did them. Well, yeah, but in, in a different way. I think, I think this is, we're not talking about uh, um, abusing each other in public there. But I, I think that, I think. Listen, you, Lester, you used, to, you used to scrap all the time, even the time. I know, it's on the training field. Yeah, but that's different. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think they do I sit down. I wonder, I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with that happening. Just shows, I, do, I wonder if they have, uh, they have set twos at training sessions. I, 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 I suspect they, they do, perhaps not in the, in the same way the old school. But there's, as I say, the game's moved on, the, the game's evolved, and that's the, the, the way you approach those issues now is probably slightly different to, to what we're... What do you mean? I, I think you've got to be a bit more cerebral about it. And, and, and that, I mean, <laughs> sort of a little bit out of my depth here, talking about being cerebral, but I think in the old days you did go out and you just sort of you got everything out in the field and that's where you sort of learnt what he's made of he learns what I'm made of and, and that's how you build that sort of teamship and camaraderie and leadership hierarchy all that sort of stuff and the confidence also so you know what people like under pressure because you've actually seen him under pressure on a, on a Tuesday morning I think now they don't, they don't have that sort of volume of training of full contact training of full full on first against seconds because you've got far too much of an injury issue. You've got player workload. So I think you do have to sit down more and talk about stuff. And even if it's looking at a video or reading, reading through leadership guide, whatever it is, I think you've got, you've got a different, different approach to what we uh, recognize as, as that sort of, I don't know what you call it, forged by fire type yeah. leadership. Well, I remember the first set to I had an England training session. I didn't know who it was at first. I started with, and uh, what if I realised it was Dino. I thought, oh, God, why did you pick this one? Of all people, there you go. But you couldn't back down, so there you go. Tell you what, why don't we speak to uh, former Saracens number eight, join the club at a similar time to Mark McCall. He's been on the show. We'll talk about Pro 14 with him as well. Michael Owens here. Hello, Michael. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? All right, before we go on to the Pro 14 and uh, Leinster and, and, and so on, did you... In your time there with McCall, think that he had the ability to get them where they've got to now when you first started working? It was really difficult because uh, I think it was a really unique way of doing things when Mark came in because Brendan Vent, there was obviously the, the head coach, and Mark came in and he was just sort of, he was almost like, they were almost like getting him ready to, to take over and stuff. So he wasn't that like heavily involved in stuff. He was sort of almost like an observer. And then, yeah, and then what he's done since then has just been phenomenal. I think Brendan Venter laid, like, tremendous foundations for, for Saracens as an organisation. And then, he obviously, he knew Mark, and I think the intention probably was to for him, for him to take over. And I think he's just done it in a really intelligent, thoughtful way. And they just keep building on it and just keep getting better and better. And they just progress little by little. And now they're, they're a phenomenal side. And Mark's done an unbelievable job. All sides go through... All dynasties, and that's what they're, they're trying to, and starting to create. They go through periods, and, and they'll be successful. At some point, they'll dip, because it, it can't last forever. But how long do you think it can last? I think when you look at the age profile of the Saracen team, I think that's probably one of the most exciting things, if you're involved with it, because you've got people who've got like a significant amount of caps, a significant amount of experience, they've won trophies, and they're, sort of, they're coming into their best years as well. You look at like the homegrown players, and they, they, they're coming into 
they're coming into their own, like now they're going to come into the prime of their careers. So I think the Saracens really could, it could last for another five to 10 years. I think they've got, uh, they've got that much ability and the, the academy system I know is really strong as well. So you've got a good steady stream of talent coming in. So it's, um, and if you were a player as well from outside of England, you, if you wanted to join a club, you'd be, you'd be looking at Saracens. They'd probably be your number one pick because of the way they do things and the way they look after you. So I think they've got a lot of things in place to be able to have a, a significant amount of time at the top of the game. Uh, hi, Michael. It's uh, George Shooter here, mate. Hi, George. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, thanks. Just you, you're talking there about the, the youth system and the academy coming through. We just mentioned you worked with Nick Ezekwe when he was at school at, uh, at Haleybury College. What do you make of his progress and, and where, where do you think he could end up in the next, uh, I don't know, four or five years or so? Yeah, Nick's a, he's an incredible talent. He's um, As an athlete, he's unbelievable. Like When he came into school, he was like, he did the discus and sports day and he threw like 45 metres, I think it was, like <laughs> national qualifying standard. <laughs> so he, he's just, he's an extraordinary athlete and the, the sky's the limit for Nick, I think. And the, I think the way he's developed over the last couple of years has been brilliant to see. He's sort of really developed like, the, like he's become a Saracens player, if you like. Um, I think he had a bit of a, a big setback, obviously, when he went to South Africa in the summer. I think he was unfortunate because I thought at the end, the back end of the last season, he was playing some tremendous rugby. I thought he was really unfortunate to be taken off in the manner he was. I don't think that would have yeah. would have helped him in, in any way, really. But he's a, he's, a, he's a tremendous player, and I think he's someone with huge potential. And when he comes through, comes through with Saris, I think he could uh, he, he could be a real um, significant player for, for Saracens and England. Yeah, and, and that 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 uh, uh, bench not benching or removed from the game um, uh, for a young player that could have gone uh, one or two ways. It could have sort of ruined his career, could have uh, absolutely devastated him. But he seems to have bounced back pretty strong from that. He, he's uh, he's playing a, a significant role in this current Saracens uh, dynasty. Um, what, what's he like mentally as a kid? Was he was he like this uh, as a youngster? Yeah, he's a lovely guy. He's really family orientated and stuff, and he's really grounded boy. And he's uh, he's done brilliantly. He's just mature and uh, like you see him like. Like, like every normally they tend to see him every year and stuff at uh, the, the similar sort of point and you just see the difference in him year on year and it just uh, gravitas that he's got and like the increased confidence in a, but in a, in a good way like it's just it's, he's, he still remained pretty humble so he's got uh, yeah I think he's got a real like really exciting prospect and someone who could like I say go on and become a, a really significant figure for Saracens in England Well one of the things they've done uh, well and a lot better than they used to do I mean they used to be a side who just splashed money on big name players, some worked, some didn't, but they've been, in my mind, far more selective in the uh, buys they've made. Elliot Daly, wait, I mean, <laughs> he's such a good player. I mean, he's going to play somewhere for them, but where do you think they're looking to do to play with him? Yeah, I have no idea. It's very difficult, isn't it, to see? Thinking like, would you, where would you, where would you like fit him in? I and like you say, I, I don't know either. I think you you play him somewhere, but definitely not going to play him at fullback because. But then I suppose that shows the fallacy of England. Alex Good is like for me undoubtedly like the best fullback in Europe. Probably he's a he's an unbelievable player and how consistent he is. He's not going to play there. Maybe for Sean Maitland on the wing potentially, but he's Sean Maitland's obviously pretty good as well. Yeah, I don't know. It's a really difficult one to try and uh, try and work out. And Lazowski's working. He's looking looking the part as a centre as well, isn't he? At thirteen, his defence is really strong. So. I guess it's probably that 13 or the or the 11 slot, maybe one of those two, one of those wing slots or centre. So, but yeah, it uh, gives certainly gives Saracens a significant bench, doesn't it, to, to be able to impact games even further. Let's switch to Pro 14 if you don't mind, because I know that you follow that uh, closely. I wasn't sure that Leinster, after the way in which Saracens beat them, it's quite comprehensive. It doesn't usually happen to Leinster. I didn't think. Well, I wasn't certain that they will be able to pull it off, especially away um, at Glasgow. They did in the end. It wasn't uh, uh, you know, comfortable, but I thought they were the better team for large parts of the game. You, you've got the top two in the Premiership. You've got Saracens and Exeter. Are Glasgow and Leinster that bit apart like those two in the English game, or are they, is it closer? I think, uh, I don't think Leinster, Leinster are not far off. They obviously like European Cup winners like recently and they're a really good side. I know Saracens beat them like well, but then you look at what they did. Saracens did to Exeter in last year's uh, Premiership final as well, and that can happen on a, on any given day. But I think Leinster are definitely up there as like sort of a match for sort of Saracens and Exeter, and they're probably the three standout teams at the minute, aren't they? In um, in the British and Irish game, if you like. So I think they're the, they're the three club sides to set the standard, and it's up to everyone else to try and try and get there and, and match them. 
and this is a difficult question, but um, I'm going to put it to you anyway. It doesn't. I don't know how this has happened. I don't know how it keeps happening that Wales are so good when the regions don't produce yet again. Is there anything that fills you with confidence that the that the Welsh regional setup is going to be much improved in the next two or three years? No, it's really struggling and it's really challenging times for for, for the regions in Wales because I think like they're lacking probably a little bit of support in terms of like like fans coming through the through the gate. Um, and they obviously they're playing performances and not helping that. It's, it's a big challenge for Welsh rugby because I think like the success of the national team has underpinned the whole of the Welsh game really. But it's obviously difficult to sustain now when you look at like the the, dis- the disadvantages Wales are at in terms of playing population and, and resources and stuff like that. And then you look at the, and you think of Warren Gatland leaving and the job that he's done uh, with Wales is incredible. So it's, it's going to be a really challenging time I think for Welsh rugby. And it's just about trying to have like that cohesive plan. I think they can take a lot of heart from teams like. If you look at like Ponot and you look at Glasgow and Edinburgh as well, like they, they were probably in a similar sort of place to where the Welsh regions are now, if not worse off. Um, and they've built themselves up and become, they've won the Pro 14 and stuff in, in the case of Glasgow and Connaught. So it's like, it is it is possible to do it, but it's going to take a lot of a lot of planning and a lot of work. And I think it's just, they need that consistency. I think too much too much of the time in Wales, things jump, jump back and forth and they don't stay on like a, a path, if you like, of... Uh, consistent improvement and I think that's what that's probably what's required but I don't think it's going to be no quick fixes it's going to it's going to take a while but hopefully the national team can continue to be successful in the interim until the regions get their act together well they've probably got the best chance so I think of, of any World Cup that there's ever been so we'll see Michael great to speak to you again have a good summer mate cheers Brian thank you it is strange isn't it George that the national team continues to improve and has got itself into a position where, yeah, I'm not saying they will uh, win the World Cup, but with a bit of luck, you know, if they all stay fit and so on, they've got a much better chance than I think they've ever had. How can they do that when the region, the, the terrible some of the regions? I, I, I genuinely think more that actually playing for Wales is a huge relief for all those players because they have a bit of structure. They have good coaching, great I say great facilities, state of the art facilities. Everything there is is put is, is is for them. The the hotel is beautiful. It's exactly what happened with when Clyde Woodward took over England. He, he made sure that all the players have to do is rock up and train, rock up and play. Everything else is taken care of for them. Whereas you go back to your your provinces and there's bickering in, in uh, above the board level about expenses and money and this and that. The coaching is, is sort of up and down and changeable. Uh, so really, the, the, I suppose it makes it even more desperate to play for your country because it gives you the opportunity of becoming a better player. Uh, that's, and, a, that's a good point. I hadn't considered that. I mean, cause, because the way that countries like Wales, Scotland and Ireland, who don't have as big a playing base as France and England, but they have the same population as uh, New Zealand, the way that they can compete is to is to get their act together with the national coaches and you know get the system the pyramid all the way down right to you know junior minis and everything focused because you you can't do that in England it's too late in yeah. England it's too late in France yeah. but they can do that then that's the way they see to me the Welsh rugby union should just bite the bullet what you can't do is say you're autonomous but we're going to dabble a bit <laughs> You know, say either you're completely autonomous. And the fact is, if there were loads of multimillionaires that wanted to invest in Welsh regional rugby, they would have found them by now. But they aren't. Simple as that. Bite the bullet, buy them, run them in the way that you want and get all the synergy and all that sort of stuff. It's It's a big undertaking. But to me, that's a, he's a straightforward way forward. Yeah, and also, I think they they that's they probably look at New Zealand model and think we should be doing that because the New Zealand club rugby is is not as big as it used to be. It's still obviously locally, it's very big. Uh, but the the All Blacks, the New Zealand RFU have all control of the provinces. So if they want uh, more, you need more game time. We're going to put you over to uh, the Blues because there's a guy in front of you. Well, and all they the do. coaches meet regularly, don't they? Yeah, the, exactly. The, yeah. The national so, and, uh, and, and for some reason, it seems to work there. Whereas I think there's a, there's a genuine uh, power struggle in Welsh rugby where they are a few want all the power, like say, but they want to dabble a bit. It seems to be in New Zealand, it's far more. Everyone's working to to get players to play for the All Blacks. Whereas in Wales, oh, I want my player to play for me at the weekend. We've got Claremont away or whatever it is. So there's no real cooperation between the 
uh, sort of the, the satellites and the and the RFU. But I think it's also worth saying that Warren Gatland knows how to build an environment, knows how to build how to build a a winning environment, and 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 that's 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 a, a huge part of their success as well. Time to speak to the top rugby referee, Nigel Owens. He was at Twickenham for the Barbarians game on Sunday. Recent speaker at the Hay Festival. Hello, Nigel. Hey, well, Brian. How are you? I'm all right. I've done uh, Hay on White. I didn't realise it was so big. I mean, it's small, it's small little town, but the, the event itself is huge, isn't it? It is. It is a, it's a very, uh, very enjoyable event as well. First time I've been there, I, I know I'm aware of it and know of it, but I didn't realise what it entailed and, and how big it was. It was a really, really enjoyable day that i, I got to say. You know, a lovely, lovely, lovely place, lovely town, but anyway, every, every place in Wales is lovely, as you know. Well, I was staying there, <laughs> tell them that a prop, proper authors kept coming up to me and saying, how would you describe your writing style? I said, well, um... Well, my book is about kicking French people, so I don't really, I wouldn't really say it's kind of style. Yeah. The Barbars match, the, these games can be something and nothing, can't they, actually, often. But I thought that uh, England, the England 15, given their um, relative youth, uh, inexperience and, you know, maturation, lack of power, did quite well in that game. You know, how do you, do you approach it any differently to, to, to any other game? Well, I used to, Brian, and most referees did. And uh, it's, as you saw yesterday, it was a very, very enjoyable game of rugby. It played in a Bavarian style, which one would expect, but also had a little bit of, of edge about it. Well, it wasn't just, you know, uh, defences were non-existent. It really was some, you know, top quality rugby. Um, uh, the danger in the past, and I refereed the Scotland Barbarians game in one of my first test matches many, many years ago. And the danger with the Barbarians games is you go in there, and probably it's very similar to the players, you go in there with the attitude, or oh, just let things go and they'll play. And they don't anymore, you know. It's, it's really, they want to win, the both sides want to win, it has an edge about it. And unless you referee it and approach it like you would referee a test match, you're, you're going to come up short. And, and that's happened in the past. And it used to be a fixture where they would appoint some of the, the new referees on the block to give them a bit of experience, but they've now sort of gone back to appointing the experienced referees because they're a very, very difficult and tough game to, to officiate. Although they're very enjoyable, if you don't get that balance right, it can blow up in your face. And you've got to get the balance right. Of, you need to referee it, but also then on the odd occasion, you, you need to sort of, you know, have a bit of empathy and let things flow and appreciate what the fixture is. And uh, I'd like to think and hope that, that I managed to get the balance right yesterday for the both teams to go out and express themselves and, and enjoy themselves. And uh, I'm pretty sure everybody concerned, and particularly people watching the game, would have enjoyed a, a great game of rugby, which, which you know, which, which had some rugby played in it as well. Nigel, a question from a... Uh... Listener, John McNaught, I don't think that's his proper name. He's saying, look, he's saying that the intervention of the TMO, he believes that it's so overused that the element of luck has left the professional game. Or words to that effect. I've got my own views. What's your view on that? We discussed it in the past, I think, Brian. And, you know, I, I think everybody's agreed that it's, it's humanly impossible if you could get some decisions correct in the field without technology. And in the modern game, what's riding on these games now in qualification, in knockout games, in winning cups, in qualifying for Europe, in avoiding relegation and everything that comes with it, with people's livelihoods, not just the players, but everybody involved. It's a huge industry now and you need to get the big decisions right and you need technology to help you to get those decisions sometimes and technology has a place in rugby and, and we need it there to get those big calls right. But I also agree that on occasions it is overused. And I believe we need to use it less. How we do that, whether it's down to us as individuals, as referees to come together and as a group to do that, or is it something to do maybe within the protocol of the game maybe that needs to be looked at that, you know, we tighten it up a bit so there are less things you can go to check and now we make sure we get them right as a team of three on the field then and only use the TMO as a, as a last resort for the big decisions which we, we just couldn't get right as, as, a, as, as a human being on the field. Well, I actually think it's got better. I mean, Several seasons oh, ago, it was terrible. And I think it has got better. I, I just think two things that all the officials, either in the box or on the field, need to keep in mind is the referee makes a decision, unless he doesn't see something, and then you go, and it's a clear and obvious, keep your mind on that, the clear and obvious, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You have to look at it. Fifty times or whatever, it isn't. So let, let's stick to that. But I think but I think problem, it's improving. The problem, have, the, the problem you have that thing, Brian, is even though if you look at it fifty times, technically the decision may be may be wrong with the referee giving it on the field. 
And technically, the TMO then will come in to give it the right one. And the problem now with, because of technology in the game, everybody watching a game now expects you to get everything technically correct. And the game of rugby, you cannot referee technique correct. You need to get that empathy and understand what needs to be let go because it doesn't have any outcome on the game or any influence on the phase of play. It's a very difficult balance to get right. And, and you know, as a team of four, including the TMO, now you need to get the balance right. So I, I agree with you in that sense. But people expect you now to get every single thing technically correct and if they want that then you're not going to have a game of rugby I, I totally understand that I think, I think we need to have some sort of understanding with spectators of what cricket has with the umpire's call you know, yeah. they make the decision if it's absolutely marginal um, on the uh, video evidence or could go either way you might have a different interpretation sorry we're sticking with the decision you know, it's only things that are egregiously wrong anyway Hopefully, you know, we'll uh, we'll have a good World Cup and, um, you know, we won't have to, we'll have a, as few as we can possibly have uh, controversies, controversies on this uh, on this particular subject. I think uh, before you go, I, I've often wondered this. George, got a question for you. <laughs> Nigel, hello, it's George Shooter here, mate. George, how are you? Long yeah. time no see. Yeah, yeah, good, mate. All good. All good. I understand you're just coming out of the gym, is that right? I, well, I'm going back in. I've just come out to, to, to give Brian this call and I'm oh, yeah. going back on to finish my... Getting yourself finish summer ready. Getting yourself summer ready. Well, I mean, body. <laughs> the, the, everyone knows now, I mean, from a playing point of view, uh, the World Cup squads get named and the players meet up for 10 weeks and go on their camps and everything like that. What, what, are the, what do the referees do? Do the referees get a holiday? Are you, are, you, are you just relaxing for the next month and then getting into, into World Cup uh, mode? No, not, not quite, to be honest with you, yeah. George, because I, I just finished on Sunday. Well, again, a lot of the, the players finished on the weekend as well. And my last game was, was yesterday now until I, until I fly out to Fiji. I think it's the 27th or 28th of July to referee Fiji for two weeks. Then I go to referee France, Scotland in Paris. Then I go up to Edinburgh to run touch uh, oh. Scotland, France in, in Edinburgh. And then about 10 days after that, I'll fly out to the World Cup. So, yeah. you know, I go fitness testing now, which needs to be done in the next sort of six weeks leading into the camp we have in Japan, sort of earliest July, three or four days out there ready for the World Cup. So, yes, you know, I'm going to take, you know, a week downtime of a week somewhere in the next week or two. But I also need to keep training as well yeah. because, you know, we're up and running in, in five or six weeks time. So it's very, very little downtime really for the referees, less so than the players because you'd be involved then in in the Southern Hemisphere games as well, whereas oh, the players up in the Northern Hemisphere, once they finish their season, they don't start back till September, mid-September, where we will start back maybe sometimes um, in sort of early August, middle of August in the Rugby Championship. So very, very less uh, time than the players off, really. So I'm hoping to get a bit of downtime. I just bought a bit of land, so i got some hay and stuff to do, uh, <laughs> on a, and I'm going to do a bit of farming. So we've got a bit of hay to do in the, in the next two weeks when the weather comes. So I'll be taking a week off then to, to be on the, on the bills. Oh, do, you have, awesome. do you have the bleep test? No, we have the yo-yo test, which is oh. very similar to the bleep yeah. test. But um, you sort of you run on you the run beats of it, it. yeah, and then yeah. you've got like a five seconds to go around a cone and come back and then go on the next beep. So it's it's not sort of continuous like the beep test. It's like a five seconds walking recovery before you go again, which is more sort of game related, really. So that's what we'll have to do now leading into the World Cup. Well, make sure you uh, make sure you pass. I'm sure you will. And uh, I'll try my best. It's getting harder my age. Enjoy uh, your dry stone walling or whatever you're going to do as a farmer. Hopefully, we'll speak to you again uh, next season, mate. Yeah. Cheers, Brian. All the best. Cheers, Have a good summer, everybody as well. Bye bye. Let's do a season wrap. Before we come on to Leicester, <laughs> Quinns have moved forward. Gloucester certainly have. Northampton have got a long way in the first season. I didn't think they'd get that far. What about Wasps and Bath? Because they're still to me, not not where they should be. Yeah, there's the, the, the signings that Wasps have made. Actually, they've made some pretty high profile signings. Lost some players, they and are losing high profile yeah, they players, are. They are you're right, but I, I I just look at them and I think they're just a team in limbo. And the same goes for Bath. They've got. I think Bath are probably that's a, a, a bit more of a disadvantage in losing the coaching team. And I, I just think they're a team that's a perennial underachiever and have been for a long, long time. Very difficult to shake that tag, whereas Wasps have obviously had success uh, in the not-too-distant past. But they're, they're two teams that are, appear to be training water at the moment. Um, Wasp flirted with a bit of the relegation, but actually when, when we pushed Camp to shove, they had enough quality to to rise above that. Uh, Bath flirted with the sort of top four, top six, and and, and again, didn't quite, uh, didn't quite have the... The wherewithal to push over, and, and I think they'll definitely be looking over their shoulders. I, I don't. I don't think there's going to be a huge improvement from the teams that sort of finished. I don't know eight downwards. Whereas a team well, like Sale, Worcester, Worcester have improved as well. Well, I, I just don't. I don't think until about next year. I, I don't. Well, I don't know if they're going to be out. Well, I, I mean, I've heard extraordinary figures yeah. for Coleman and things. 
850 grand. I mean, I don't, I don't know. But well, yeah, you, you hear numbers and you, you take it take it for, with a but grain of salt, I'd say. But, but taking their return a bit more seriously. Yeah, oh, definitely. I think the, the, the squad they've assembled and, and, and look at it, they probably looked at the Bristol model and thought we need to get some quality in this year and then sign in for, for next year, which they've done. I, I, think, I think they'll be uh, certainly... Uh, a premiership team, that's for sure. There won't be a, a London Welsh will come up and, and get rid of all their players and, and lose all their games. But I mean, the, the bottom three that, that are staying up will be Leicester. I don't think they're going, I don't think Worcester will be uh, out of the relegation scrap. And then you, again, you've got Wasps and Bath, who, who I think will be there, thereabouts again between sort of sixth and, yeah. and ninth. I just at the moment, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah, I'd be happy And what about wrong, Leicester? But... Because I've talked to you about this, I've talked to Louis, I've talked to several people, both in terms of doing. Uh, a column for the Telegraph and this podcast. And the consensus seems to be that this malaise this year is not down to just this year. It's a culmination of several years of, I don't know what, taking that off the ball at board level and so on. Lewis was saying to me he felt it was a root and branch thing that might take uh, several years to, to effect. But if that's the case, are the changes going to go throughout the club, including management um, and that's commercial and um, you know and the, the actual playing management and coaching staff um, because it seems to me if you're going to do this you might as well do it all yeah you have to you mentioned the root and branch there a minute ago more and, and, there, and we were led to believe there was a root and branch review at some point after the Richard Cockle departure uh, that clearly didn't happen because there was a bit of branch removal but no <laughs> no root or anything else no, yeah, yeah. And the club then went on, went from bad to worse. And uh, I, I wouldn't guarantee it. I wouldn't put a mortgage on it, but I'm not convinced that there'll be any improvement. And I'm expecting actually a worse season in, in, in some respects. Uh, the, I, 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 I mean, the only thing worse would be relegation. Well, I, mean. the, the, I, think, I think what they're banking on is there'll be ring fencing. So we're going to give Jordan Murphy uh, two years to get, quote unquote, his squad together. And then we'll go from there. They're... they're Hat is in the ring with Jordan Murphy now. Uh, I, I think they'll they'll lose face. I'm talking about the board and, and the, the the decision makers at the club. They'll lose face if they get rid of another top coach, another head coach rather in uh, in in a short space of time. So their their future is welded to him unless they were the ones to go, and, and that's not going to happen. I just don't see that happening at all. So I think. Without, and, and there's just a lot of mixed messages coming through already about next year. So Jordy was in the paper on a Wednesday saying, I, I envisage mass changes in the, in the coaching department. And on the Friday, he was in the paper saying, I'm really happy with the coaching department. I don't think there's been any changes. So I think there's just, there's, and then that's not, the, that's not an isolated incident. There's a lot of mixed messages coming out of every level of the club. I just genuinely think that the club is in sort of free fall, Thing is, you you compare that to the very direct, consistent message from Saracens. Yeah. This, 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 and or, this, or even Exeter. I mean, or Exeter, Exeter or, weren't there blaming yeah. referees for losing yeah. that game yeah. and blaming wage caps or anything like that. Rob Baxter steps out and says they're winning European cups. Um, they're they're wetting us. I can stand here and give you all my thoughts on the game, but it's the reality is we've stepped forward. That's what he's coming out. He's very positive. He's very forward thinking. You're not hearing uh, rumours from uh, above him of, oh. of of this and that. Uh, and that's a really well settled club. But Saracen's obviously very, very well settled. We've known that for a while. Gloucester now, Gloucester are, are, are sort of shaping that sort of thing. Uh, Chris Boyd at Northampton Saints has, has, has sort of steered that ship calmly. There's just none of that going on at Leicester from any level of the club. Uh, and I don't see how that how we're signing six six or seven players over the summer will will alter that. Well, time now to uh, have a look at the world game because the proposals by. World Rugby, well, the agreements, I thought it was that uh, 18 months ago as to what the world calendar would look like seemed to be up in the air halfway through the season, possibly because of Augustine Pichot talking about world leagues and so on. Now, our next guest, the former director of rugby at Saracens and Quinn's and Melbourne, uh, Mark Evans, who's now uh, stepped away from rugby union, but got a book coming out uh, called Unholy Union September and... One of the things I think Mark uh, believes is that there either is now or will be very shortly a tipping point in uh, rugby union in the overall world game. Why don't we speak to him and ask him to explain that? Hello, Mark. Hi, Brian. How are you? Okay. Unholy Union. Is it possible to presate or is it such a a wide-ranging book? It's very (laughs) wide-ranging. But yes, I would say uh, two things. 
that all sports come to a point in their history uh, or their progression whereby they can go one way or t'other, a, a tipping point, if you like. And our contention, if, if nothing else, is that rugby union globally is at one now. It's set within a context that says, really, this shouldn't be a surprise that rugby union basically stopped developing in about 1895 when it split with Lee. Nothing really significantly changed for 100 years. A load of other sports sort of wrestle with all the things sports wrestle with, um, you know, from cricket to AFL to league to American football. And rugby pretty much stayed the same. And then in 1996, somebody released the slingshot and we missed the 20th century and uh, went straight into the 21st. So, uh, you know, not surprisingly, we've got one or two issues. In in particular, obviously, the... The distribution of money, a huge thing, the way in which tier two teams are funded, the access to the top two competitions uh, and so on. I've thought for a while when I've been hearing some of these salaries that are being paid now, and it's not jealousy, a fair play to them. I understand professionalism, I understand the players' desire to be rewarded as much as they can, but to me the economics are starting to get very stretched. Unless broadcast revenues continue to rise or you attract more multimillionaires to basically throw money down the drain, something is going to give to me. I'm not sure how you deal with that. Uh, Well, I think you could deal with it. I just wonder whether we've got the governance structures to be able to. But it's also a a little, it's it's multifaceted, but it depends which country you're talking about. England's got issues, of course, but compared to many other tier one countries, uh, Australia, Argentina, South Africa, they're pretty manageable. Some of those things are from outside rugby. They're just economic forces beyond rugby's control in one or two countries. The other big destabilizing influence is that we call it the black hole of England and France, the two biggest markets who also happen to have the only two countries in the world to have a domestic league in the one country. And if Earnings in those two markets continue uh, funded by investors or benefactors, depending on how you see them or how they see themselves. It's very, very difficult to see how rugby does what it needs to do, which is to become more popular in more countries and generate more broadcast revenues. And at the same time, ensure that some of its traditional markets with the ones I've mentioned, which aren't that big, but they are important for rugby, how they can maintain some kind of financial stability at one and the same time. I mean, the essential fault line in English rugby was created in 95 when the RFU refused to do anything and yes. let everyone just run away. And they're now going to face it. That, that is going to continue until something happens, something big. Now, I don't know how long down the line. Do you think, do you think that fault line is manageable with these eight-year agreements or, or is something going to break? I, I think it's manageable within England and I think that because of the size of the television market, if, the, if and it's a big if, if the broadcast revenues for club rugby continue to rise and if we've had three waves of... Um, wage increase in English rugby over the last 20 years. And we're on the third wave at the moment. And and each of them has reached a point and we've got nearly back to balance. And then we've gone off again. Um, we, we lack some of the, um, we lack some of the structures that you need because which other, some other sports have, which keeps your revenue and spending roughly in line collectively. I think that could be done. I'm less, I'm less confident about some of the other smaller nations maintaining the sport uh, at any significant level. I think that is a lot more challenging, which sort of explains the whole move to the world rugby thing, which is an attempt to have some degree of revenue sharing at international level. I think the decision of what the six nations do whether they decide to go off on their own, either through a private equity deal or through a minimum revenue guarantee deal, is absolutely critical. If they decide to go off on their own in one shape or form, I think that's making things look extremely uncertain for a number of other nations. 
But it's quite hard with nations such as Scotland and Wales, for example, who you know are not that wealthy in comparison to England and France to turn down something that will generate themselves more revenue, although in the long run it might shrink the game internationally. It's uh, George Judah here, mate. Hi, George. Uh, yeah, hi. Right. Uh, just on that World League, I mean, how viable uh, do you think it is to have a, a World League? I mean, uh, without having the numbers in front of me, the, the proposal by Pichot was uh, having these sort of league uh, divisions or conferences, whatever you want to call it, with relegation and promotion in it. Now, one of the immediate issues was if we, if a tier one team was to have a bad year and get relegated, how would that impact the, the game in that country and financially? Oh, I mean, what, what, do, you, do you see it as um, in any way a viable competition? I, I don't think the, I haven't been party to the details, so I've got to, you know, you've got to be you know, sensible in these things and, and, and start sounding off when you don't have all the information. But I think the, the overall principle, which is, if we just let each nation paddle our own canoe for another 10 years, the whole thing will shrink. That, that would be my contention. I can see what they're trying to do in principle, but I think it's going to be incredibly difficult for them to pull that off. It's difficult if they do that, tier ones may be slightly better off, but tier two access, which is a, the other bit of the equation, which is, you know, you try and protect tier one and grow tier two, try and do those two things at one and the same time is extraordinarily difficult. But I can see that's what they're trying to do. I'm not just quite not sure they've got a, a workable answer. And the, and the biggest problem which goes across the club game as well, of course, is because we're desperately trying to raise revenue, both at club and rev and, and international level, the, the, ob- the most obvious way to try and do that is let's play more games. Yeah. But of course, in the medium term, that's self-defeating. You've got a whole issues of player welfares and you've got a whole issue of people getting bored with rugby 11 months of the year. And, and, and therefore, my contention would be that we need to make some hard, take some harder decisions uh, and more radical decisions to get the the costs and the revenues at international club level back into some kind of balance. Mark, we're going to have to leave it there. This is a topic which you could do a whole podcast on. Oh, well, uh, and actually, bearing, bearing in mind you're booking out <laughs> in September and I'm a patron of the Wimbledon Book Fest, yeah. uh, why don't you come along and, uh, and chat on stage about that? Well, that's very kind. I'd love to. Absolutely. Uh, have a good summer, mate. Cheers, boy. Take care. Just to take some uh, final questions, a quick fire ones, George. Adam Peake said, England squad, two or three scrum halves, do you think? I mean, Jones has seemingly had a point on for, for, for only two. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think uh, <laughs> the numbers, uh, a lot of it depends on what you want to do with the forwards, to be honest, because with, without wanting to disrespect the backs out there too much, uh, if you get a few key injuries in, in position-specific forwards, then you can be struggling, whereas it's possible to slot in a few players to I play don't think for of, of, of all the back positions, I think scrum half is the one that's least, you're least able to do that. Yes, actually. yeah, potentially. But again, in the grand scheme of things, in a game, for example, you often see, you don't often see... So you often see a scrum half of the bench, but there's also a winger will step in. I mean, again, this is I'm completely aware how influential the position is, but I think if you're talking about balancing up props and maybe even uh, back rowers against uh, an extra scrum half, generally, I say Eddie Jones has favoured two. I mean, uh, it's difficult. I'd, I'd, I'd probably go with three myself because it is a specialist position, but I can understand him going with two and uh, and hoping for the best in, in some respects. Ian Bruce question, should replacements only be for sanctioned injuries or front row yellow cards or whatever? Yeah, I, I like this. and I, I, do, I do think that the substitution has got out of hand. I think eight on the bench these days and uh, the sort of procession that comes after about 45, 50 minutes. Yeah, we're talking about player welfare. Actually, I think getting players to be fitter and uh, lean up a bit more, i.e. get smaller in some ways, to play more like 80 minutes. I think, you're, again, you're looking at a, the, the a, thing, a collisions later the thing in the is, game. The thing is, George, though, it comes as complete anathema to them because they, you're, you, they're used to doing what they do. Yeah. And they all say, well, you know, we, 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 we can't all play 80 minutes. It's so ridiculous to get injured. Yeah. Saying, but no, you all get tied together. Yeah. 
And, and so the other the other aspect of this for clubs, it would save them a lot of money. It would Yeah, I think I think the genie is out of the bowl in, in terms of uh, there's 17, 16 year old kids out there near bulking up to become the next Billy Rulapolo or whatever. Although Billy does play eighty minutes, it, it's possible to do it. It's been done before. I know the game's quicker now. I know it's it's more scientific and all that. But surely you've, you've got the capacity to to improve people's fitness while not making them... Well, look, um, they could all play 80 minutes. Yeah. It's just that, as used to be the case, the last 20, they'd get relatively yeah. more tired and gaps would appear. Of course, the whole game in itself would be faster, but the, the periods and their sort of slide into tiredness and whatever would be a lot less than it was in the amateur yeah, days, but yeah. it would still be there. Yeah. This also goes on to a question from Keith. If you could change one <laughs> law for next season, what would it be and why? Well, it would, it would be the substitution law um, um, well, for me. Yeah, I guess that is a law. But for me, one of the killers of the game at the moment is this choke tackle law, uh, collapsible. How many, how many, every game, how many times in a game do you see someone go in, Poor technique from uh, ball carrier, granted. Gets held up. The referee calls more and it goes on the floor. I've never seen it penalised for a collapse. Well, you cannot no, collapse them no. all. I know. They never, they never penalised. Yeah, he never penalised. So, and that, that, that's leading so to more scrums. So what would you scrums. do when the guy is held up? Would the team going forward? Yeah, or? team going forward. Old school. That, that, yeah. that would discourage people choke tackling because yeah. it there's no benefit from it. It'd get more, get more um, people in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I just, it kills me that it's blatantly obvious that the more collapses after you said it, well, that's a bit suspicious. It is strange, isn't it? It seems to immediately <laughs> collapse. Yeah, yeah, All yeah. stable at one point. Then when he calls more, oh, it goes down. Now, yeah. it could be different. If you're trying to morph from a line out and you're poor technique, that's fine. But I think the choke tackle, it leads to more players tackling high and getting their heads in the way. True. Yeah, these these current yellow cards for, for ball carriers leaving the forearms, well, you're going to get hit in the face if you try and tackle with it. If you're trying to hit the legs, you're, gonna, you're not going to get a forearm in the face. Tell you what. They'll never do what I want because, they, as you say, the genie's out of the bottle. But, principle. but they might do, well, obviously. <laughs> but they might do that, and uh, therefore I support you in that. Look, that's all we've got time for this week and this season on Brian Moore's Full Contact with the Telegraph. Thank you to my co-host, George Shooter, and for everyone else who's been in the studio this year and contributed down the lines. Thank you to my producers, Abby Patterson and Jeremy Fulham. Abby's off to Pastors New, which is a shame, but I'm sure she'll do well. Please do subscribe to the podcast, leave a review if you haven't done already, and we'll see you next season when it's World Cup year. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.